So turn with me again to Exodus chapter 20, where we will be throughout the summer. Uh, chapter 20, as we continue our series, The Ten Commandments, A Gospel Perspective. Chapter 20, I, what I'll do is I'll read from verses 1 until we get to verse 7, which is our text this morning. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 7. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the, thir- of the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Word vain mentioned there twice. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. We've been saying there are at least two things that we need to keep in mind as we continue our study in the Ten Commandments, as we read, understand, and I was thinking about this this morning, bring application to our lives as we study and understand and bring application of the Ten Commandments. There are two things that we need to keep in mind so that we keep this commandment, these Moral laws of God in its historical, covenantal, and redemptive context. The big ideas, the two big ideas is that of revelation and relationship. Revelation means, simply means the law reveals, reflects the lawgiver. God is pure and holy, good and just and righteous. And his moral law there is a reflection. It reveals his purity, holy goodness and righteousness and reflects his character and his will for our lives. But it also reveals our sin. It reveals our inability to live righteously. And therefore, it shows us that not only do we need forgiveness of our sins, but we need a righteousness that we cannot obtain. It needs to come from somewhere else, what people and theologians call an alien righteousness. After the Apostle Paul boasts about his wonderful human accomplishments, he says in Philippians 3 that it counts it all a loss for the sake of knowing Christ, the worth of knowing Christ. And that he, Paul, may be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now that Christ's righteousness has been imputed, counted to us by faith, we gladly obey and live in the freedom that Christ offers to us because of his death, burial, and resurrection. There's no fear of failure or judgment. Christ, our perfect righteousness, was punished in our place, died on a cross, and now we delight in the moral law without fear. The law reveals God. The law reveals our need for Christ. Relationship is the second thing. Remember, very important, God delivered and redeemed and and rescued and liberated and saved the people of Israel first, then gave him the law. Today we obey the law not to win God's favor, not to to gain his love or approval or somehow put him in our debt. We obey out of a renewed heart, a regenerated heart that's overwhelmed with love and gratitude because of the gospel, of the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. That's the good news. Christ died 
for my sins. He rose from the dead. And by faith alone in Christ alone, we are justified, forgiven, and made righteous. And then the gift he gives us is the Holy Spirit, who now guides us into what love looks like. And that's the moral commands of God. You know, interesting verse. I have not mentioned this yet, but John 14, 31. Jesus said this. He's teaching about the Holy Spirit, if you know anything about John 14. Jesus said, I do... Jesus saying, I do as the Father has commanded me to do. I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I, guess what, love the Father. A love of God. The gospel propels us to obey the law law and and the Lord. Remember, God's a covenant-making God. He made a promise in Genesis 3.15. made a promise to Abraham. Keeping his covenant, he'll send an offspring. He'll send the Redeemer. His name is Jesus. Delivers us from sin, Satan, death, and hell. And that new covenant promise, Jesus, says that when he dies and rises again, he'll send the Holy Spirit. That's why the new covenant promise in the Old Testament, when it declares the New Testament, it said, I'll put my law within them. I'll, I'll write them on their hearts. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. The inner man has been changed. We've been renewed, regenerated. Our disposition toward uh, God, our relationship with God has changed. And now John tells us that we are to keep his commands that are not burdensome to us. Remember, I kept saying the moral law of God is our path as long as we know it won't save us. It is a response to the gospel of salvation. As we turn to the third commandment, we'll see here today. Let's remember the first two. Number one is, you shall have no other gods before me. God has called his people to choose him and him alone, to forsake all others, to pledge ourselves completely, totally surrendering to him and him alone. That's the first commandment. The second commandment uh, teaches us how to worship. The first commandment is who God is, that we worship. The second commandment is how we ought to worship. Uh, The second commandment says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. You should not bow down to carved image to false gods or serve them. For I am the Lord, your God. I'm a jealous God. So we have this single devotion, this primary love. Greatest treasure is Christ, God alone. And everything in our life is subservient to him. As we get to the third commandment, it really follows the first two. Right? So we, we need to recognize and worship the right God in the right way. And now we need to worship him in the right words, in the right speech. In the things that we say. The third commandment, verse 7 of chapter 20 says this. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Three headings today. One name revealed, one name revered, one name renowned. That's how if you're following with me for the two of you that take notes, there you have it. First one. One name revealed. Okay, so let, let's first talk about what's, that, what, what's so important about a name. What is a name? Well, it was act two, scene two of Shakespeare's play, Shakespeare's play, Romeo and Juliet. And Juliet says this phrase as she's talking about family, her family and Romeo's family. She says this, that which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. What she, mean is there, what she means to say is that the family name doesn't mean anything. I love Romeo. We need to be together. It doesn't matter that the two family names are in rival with one another. In the end, she's saying names don't matter. I love you. Well, many people might disagree with that. 
In fact, the person's name is somewhat significant, part of their identity, of his or her identity. It distinguishes you from other people. In fact, family names can tell a great story. Uh, some of you have family names. I could tell a story of love and, and legacy and heroism. We take a lot of time when we have children, right? When you're having a baby, you know it's a boy or a girl. You're not sure you're going to pick names. Uh, back in the day, you used to get baby books. I don't, probably don't even use them today. I'm not sure. You go on the internet, right? You do some research. You find out what's the most popular name that's out there. And you say, that's not what I'm going to name my child these days. That name's going to be with their kids. So we need to be careful on how we name our children, don't we? We, 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 it means a lot to us. It marks us, identifies us. I mean, think of someone you really deeply love and you care about, and then you meet somebody who has that name. I know when I meet, if I meet a, a woman and she tells me her name is Mary, I mean, immediately I think of my wife and experience of joy and, and good thoughts, you know, and that's just, just something about that name. Kevin DeYoung and it tells a funny story. I just wanted to share this with you. I cracked up to myself when I read it. Um, he says this about, uh, uh, on the commentary, Ten Commandments, he says this. My wife and I have a lot of kids, and he does. So it can be tricky to choose good names for the younger ones, like the first couple we got. We have a son named Jacob, so Esau is pretty much out of the question. We don't want fighting going on. We always like the name Joseph, but adopted for Benjamin instead for our sixth child because we realized that we already had a Mary, and a Mary and a Joseph would be a bit much even for a pastor's family. We also consider the name Peter, a family name on my side, but we also have a Paul. And you can't name your kid Peter and Paul and Mary. <laughs> names matter to us and to our kids. And as it turns out, names also matter to God, end quote. God's name says much about who he is and what he has done for his covenant people. This is one of the reasons God's name is sacred. We must be must be used in a sacred manner of worship when we worship him. So let, let, let's say this about God's name first and foremost. The first thing we need to say about the name, God's name, is that we don't get to name God. God tells us his name. Some of you may have talked with friends or family or in school, whatever, and it's like, well, what do you think God is? Or what do you think God's name is? Who do you think God is? No, well, that, that's actually futile and could be very serious. We don't name God. We don't exercise authority over God. God has authority over us. We don't name him. He reveals his name to us. He's the Lord, sovereign one, the one who rules over all. So here's a good analogy. I read it this week. I thought it would be good for us to think through about God's name. God's name is copyrighted, right? It's a trademark. We all know about trademarks, right? If you open up a business, you're like, you know what? I want to start a business, a computer business. I think I'm going to use an apple with a nice bite out of it. There's going to be a lot of people that's not going to like that idea and think that, you know what? You shouldn't be using that trademark and that image. You don't have a license agreement to do that. Think of it that way. God owns his own name. We will use it, only allowed to use it under certain conditions. It is patented. It is trademark. It is his. He owns it. It's his name. And how it is treated is according to his requirements. That's why he threatens serious penalties for those who misuse it, unauthorized use of it. All trademark violations will be subject to the full extent of the law, and the prosecutor, judge, jury, enforcer is God. Verse 7, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. 
So again, let, let's, be, let's be mindful this, this morning of its historical redemptive context. Remember the prologue. Remember that we read in chapter, uh, in Exodus chapter 2, the end of chapter 2, before God delivers his people. We read in chapter 19, uh, the prologue as well. In chapter 20, we read the prologue. And what we read before God gives us this command is that God alone is the one who redeems them. God alone is the one who is faithful to his covenantal promises to Israel, to Abraham, and then to Israel. And God gives us his name in that context. So there's a close connection, and I'll read to you a couple of scriptures in a minute. There's a close connection between a person's name, attributes, and character and his deeds. And in some cases, some cases in scripture, misdeeds. Not God, of course. But we know we can think of some names that talk about the, the futility of some people. This connection uh, is evident when it comes to the name of God, when God gives his name back in chapter 3 of Exodus. God reveals his name, if you remember, he's going to deliver his people. He comes through this burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, and Moses says to God, after he tells him, you're going to deliver my people, if I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, the God of your father has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name, what shall I say? I I can't tell them, look, a a bush spoke to me. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am, I am has sent me to you. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Interesting passage. The word God, Elohim, means ruler, majesty, describing God as a sovereign creator. The word Lord, capital letters, is the covenant name of God. Yahweh is covenant name, describing him as a God of of covenant, of, 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 of loving covenant with his people. And the word I am, or the verb I am, or to be, expresses the essence of God's character, that he is the self existent one, self sufficient, sovereign Lord who depends on no one but is rather the one in whom we all depend on for life and breath. And it's vital that we see that God's name is identical with his being and his attributes, identical with his eternal nature. He is alone God, self-sufficient. He didn't create because he was lonely. He needs nothing from anyone. Also very important to know, God also connects his name, not only who he is and his eternal attributes, his covenant promises, but with his redemptive work. Particularly his work with the patriarch through, through Genesis 3.15, then the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So God's name, follow me now, does not only speak of God's self-existence, self-sufficiency, his supreme sovereignty, but as the events of Exodus unfold, it testifies to God's power, God's work, God's saving power. The Israelites learn from their deliverance that the God who revealed his name to Moses is a God who rescues, a God who saves. We see this connection, Psalm 106, 8. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. Psalm 75, 1. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. Praising God not simply for his name, that he has created all things for his own glory, but for his deeds, his, his mighty works, his attributes, and his redemptive works. 
Rather than loosely tossing God's name in a casual conversation, the Israelites are told in Psalm 29, Give unto the Lord the glory due His name. Psalm 66, 2, Sing forth the honor of His name. In Exodus chapter 33, Moses, you know, you might know the story, asks God, let me, let me see your glory. And God says to him his name, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, Yahweh. The way to see God's glory, the way he shows himself is speaking his name. So this is very serious. And just like the rest of the moral laws of God and the commandments of God, there's both a negative right and a positive. A negative and positive. Don't commit adultery. We'll look at that in a few weeks. What he's saying is be faithful to your spouse. When he says don't cover your neighbor's goods, we want to, he means the positive side of that is celebrate the, what's going on with your neighbors and, and, and the blessings in their lives. Don't be jealous. In the negative form, it forbids the misuse of God's name. But family, it doesn't mean... God's people are forbidden to ever use his name. In fact, Orthodox, many Orthodox Jews take this commandment to mean just that. They refuse to say it. They refuse to use it. They refuse to pronounce it, to spell it, for fear of misusing it. God wants us to use his name. In fact, the name, I think it's Yahweh, is over 7,000 times in the Old Testament. God gives us his name so that we can personally know him and, and personally love him, it's, 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 it brings us into a greater understanding of him. Calling him by name strengthens our relationship, our love relationship with him. What God forbids is that we use his name, not use his name, that we can use his name, but not misuse his name. Here in the text, is, to be more specific, is the word vain. Look at that with me. The word vain, do not use, verse 7, take the name of the Lord God in vain. The Lord will not hold guilt is to take in vain. The word vain means emptiness, falsehood, uh, wrong purposes, trivial, worthless, light, in, inconsequential. To use it disrespectfully, dishonorably, or irreverently. See, well, what's all the fuss? Leviticus 24, 6. Whoever blasphemed the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. There's the good fuss. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner, which is the alien, as well as the native, when he blasphemed the name, shall be put to death. Hmm. The reason God will judge us because misusing his name is a direct attack against him. It's a direct attack against him, his honor, his majesty, his glory, his sovereignty. He has revealed his name to us. And we are to revere it. One name revered. Remember, it's, it's about identity. In the Hebrew, um, uh, in Hebrew understanding of names are inseparable from the person. Often we think of, the, I, I don't know about you, but if you think of this command, a lot of times we think of this command and we think, you know what? Watch, watch your mouth. Right, watch your potty mouth. Watch the things you say. Stop swear using swear words. Well, that's part of the commandment, but but it's much broader than that. So let me give you four ways. Let me give you four ways uh, that we break this commandment. The first one you have there: flippant speech. 
If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you know that God's name is tossed around frivolously um, and flippant, and they just use his name carelessly. People see things like God, okay, you know, what I don't need to say it. People use the name Jesus Christ like it's second nature. It doesn't matter. You could be angry, you could be mad, you could be frustrated, or whatever the mood strikes you, you're just blatantly using his name. It's amazing how someone falls, trips, slams their hand, a hammer, a hand, a hand, a hammer on their hand or do anything else and they never yell, ah, Muhammad. Like you don't see that. (laughs) Ah, Buddha. You know, you just don't see that. There's no power in those names. Satan wants us to violate this command. That's why he wants us to use the name in vain. I remember when I was in my uh, uh, former employment, um, people would just blurt out Jesus Christ in all kinds of different ways. And if I was nearby and I hear them say Jesus Christ, I would say is Lord. I would just add to it. Like, let's make this right, you know. Um, they didn't appreciate it, but that's okay. You know, and, or you, ever, you ever say something or they say, they know you're a Christian, they use God's name in vain. And then they look at you and they go, oh, I'm sorry. I'm like, I'm not God. You'll answer to him, not me. So I would, I would repent and confess your sin to him. That's, I'm just saying. We use things. We throw it around, family. And I, I had to think about this myself. We throw around the acronym OMG. Not good. Flip an expression. Oh, good Lord. Uh, be careful. Lord of mercy. Oh, my God. In the Old Testament, you would be stoned to death. Just so you know. You'd be executed. This commandment Reminding us the importance. We should tell our kids, if you want to use God's name, do it while you're talking to him or worshiping and talking to him or singing to him or something. We need to be reminded of this commandment. If we're busy used in a flippant manner. And let me add, it was funny, I was reading this this week. Let me add the stupid t-shirts that people make. Jesus is my homeboy. I'm not wearing that t-shirt. I'm sorry. I read one this week, of <laughs> slogan, this blood's for you. Like, I'm not wearing that, right? Israel was told to respect, sanctify the name of God, and God would hold accountable for those who use it flippantly for ungodly purposes since it neither expresses faith or worship, right? We should not use his name flippantly. Secondly, foolish oaths. Foolish or false oaths. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 12. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of the Lord your God. I am the Lord. Right? When we make declarations swearing by God's name, it must not not be done foolishly with false promises. Ones that we don't intend to keep. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus confronts the Pharisees, the religious leaders of that day, Concerning the idea that they, could, they, they made this big deal out. I could, I could break oath. I don't have to keep my promises. As long as I don't swear by any article that they talked about. Footstool, Jerusalem, all this stuff. And she's like, wait a minute. You're missing the point. You are missing the point. God is everywhere. All promises are made in his presence. And involve him. They're sacred and they must be kept. It's like, oh, I just, you know, as long as I don't say this word, I really don't have to keep my promises. That's not how believers ought to be recognized. When we give our word, it's a form of an oath, and we should take it seriously. I get there are times that we have to not do what we say we're going to do. I get that. We live in a fallen world. But we ought to be people who, when make a promises, make an oath, 
We keep it. Be it marriage, be it in business, be it in relationship. We ought to be men and women who say what we mean and mean what we say and do what we say we mean. Partly, I mean, not only is it just commandment here, but trustworthiness, faithfulness is a characteristic of God and should be among his people. People are to, believers are to make promises cautiously, not foolishly, and keep them. Right? Don't make something you have no intention of keeping or following through. It's being irresponsible in the violation. So, flippant speech, foolish oaths, fake prophecies. One of my favorites. Claiming God's authority in things we say, or false prophecies ascribing things that God says that he did not say. The Lord told me this, the Lord told me that. When really what we want to do is do what we want to do. Now God speaks today. I'm not saying he doesn't. I'm simply saying, according to this command, we just need to be very, very careful in just throwing his name around. A few years ago, um, service was over and somebody came up to me after the service and said, did you see the woman in the back of the church waving a banner and, and running up and down in the back? I'm like, it was during the music. I said, no, nah, I mean, I'm at my seat. I don't see what's going on behind me. Oh, yeah. So, you know, I had to go find out. I had to see this person, you know. So I go in the back of the chair. There she is. She introduced herself to me. I introduced myself to her. And she said, I was driving by the church a few days ago, and God told me to come here Sunday morning and to run in the back with the banners. And I said, that's interesting. God told me to tell you not to run in the back with the banners. Needless to say, she didn't come back. What is even worse than claiming personal preference, as God said, is when someone says to you, God told me to tell you. Be leery of that. Unless your phone's off the hook and you're not getting any calls, be leery of that. If you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, you have the Word of God as well. It's like, oh, I missed that call. I don't know. He never told me that. When fake or false prophets quote God and lie... It's considered abuse of his name. Jeremiah 14, 14. And the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them or speak to them. They are prophesying to you lying visions, worthless divination, and deceit of their own minds. Jeremiah 23, 25. I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have a dream, I have a dream. False prophecies, fake prophecies, an attempt to use God's name... To, to, to bring one's own agenda. We have the scriptures. No one speaks with authority like the word of God. Whether it is Jesus coming back Thursday at 2. Or a look at the moon. Or any other way. There's another book out. Harvard just put out another book. Stay away from that phony, false, fake stuff. Stick to the word of God. Jesus said, I not know the hour or the time. So if somebody's greater than Jesus, then fine, listen to him. But I don't know anybody. Don't listen to that. People boost their credibility by claiming God is on their side. Drives me crazy. So one of the ways we use, misuse his name is, is by, by claiming to use his name with authority. Uh, and sort of like a, a blank check for your decision, your own activities. Now, just think, if somebody, if you said something to someone... And someone took what you said and completely twisted it, completely misused it. Would you be like, ah, that's okay? And God's not either. Happy with that, right? So we have to be careful. Scripture speaks. People take 
scripture out of context and use it to support their own personal opinion. So flippant speech, foolish oaths, fake prophecies, and last, false pretenses. We pretend to be something or at least to be one of God's people when we're not. The worst thing we can do is be phony about ourselves. And some of you may be here this morning and you love to sing and you love to be here. And we're glad you're here, but you've never really given your life to Christ. Jesus warned. But those who would be surprised on the day, that last day. Listen to this, Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? I will plainly say to them, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Notice in that text in Matthew 7, they're professing believers. Lord, Lord, they called them. We, we, we drove out demons, we prophesied, we performed miracles in your name. I never knew you. You're using my name in vain. So we have to be careful. In our lives, therefore, we must always be aware of the fact that we are representative of our Father who's at work. Whether we're at work, we're in school, or in relationships, in the home. Our motive must always be to, to sanctify God's name and God's reputation. I know we're not doing it perfectly, I get that. And just as I said earlier, we don't follow the commands in order to be loved and cherished and accepted. We are loved and cherished and accepted in the gospel, and therefore we do our best to honor his name. John Calvin said this, The purpose of this commandment is, God wills that, he, that we hollow the majesty of his name. Therefore it means in brief that we are not to profane his name by treating it contemptuously or irreverently. To this prohibition duly corresponds the commandment that we should be jealous and careful to honor his name with godly reverence. Therefore, we ought to be so disposed in mind and speech that we neither think nor say anything concerning God and his mysteries without reverence and much soberness, that in estimating his works we conceive nothing but what is honorable to him, end quote. Calvin used the word hollow, and I think he got it from Matthew 5. Jesus teaches us how to pray, how to talk to God. Pray like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed is to consecrate, to set apart for a sacred purpose. And this is what God wants to do, to revere his name, to preserve it to the work, to the, for the purpose of worship and praise. There are many things we can do with God's name that God wants us to do. Reverently, properly. Could praise his name, honor his name, bless his name, celebrate his name, lift his name high, worship and adore. To honor God's name, wrote Martin Luther, is to use that very name in every time of need to call on, to pray, to praise, and to give thanks to God. Many of the Psalms speak about that. Here's just a few. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name, Psalm 929, 96. Sing to the the glory of his name, make his praise glorious, Psalm 96. Praise to his glorious name forever, Psalm 92. Praise the Lord, O my soul, O my innermost being. Praise his holy name, Psalm 103. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. One name revealed, one name revered, and one name renowned. 
The law, as we said, reflects God's character and his attributes, but also because Jesus is God, reflects his person, his perfect righteousness. Jesus never used the name of God in vain. But just like we looked at Exodus, we have to see in the work of Jesus. It not only reflects his perfect righteousness, but it also shows forth the great work of his redemption. Following me? So Christ's connection to the third commandment is where we begin, where we began, we end up with his redemptive work. Remember, God delivered Israel, called Moses, revealed himself as the I am. I am who I am, Yahweh. Say to my people, I am has sent you. Moses goes and does what God says. The I am sent me. God judges the Egyptians. He sends the ten plagues and they get what? They get liberated, delivered, redeemed. Moses meets God on the base of Mount Sinai. And then thousands of years later, Jesus Christ walking on the earth. And we read in the gospel according to John chapter 8. We read this. Well, we read a story. If you know, you know it's, a great, it's a great chapter. It's, it's during one of the festivals and feasts. And it was during the lighting of a great candle opera that illuminated the temple, even part of the city. It was, it was meant to remind the people of the very Shekinah glory of God, the very presence of God that came down while they were in the wilderness wandering, that protected them and guided them through the wilderness. And Jesus says and looks at that light and sees illuminating and says what? I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He goes on in chapter 8, verse 24. He says, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. To die in one's sin is to die eternally without Christ, without forgiveness, in a place Jesus calls and the scriptures call hell. And the religious leaders were not having this. And they're like, who do you think you are, Jesus? Who are you? Jesus says to them in John chapter 8, verse 56, your father... Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, man, you are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Come on, Jesus. We're talking thousands of years ago, even before Moses. What does Jesus say? Truly, truly. Not using the word in vain. I'm telling you the truth. I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. God, the pre-existent and eternally existent God. God told Moses, tell them, I am sent you. Jesus comes along and says, my name is the I am. The God who spoke to Moses, the God who was before Abraham, the God who created the heavens and the earth. They know what he's claiming. They picked up stones to throw at him. Why? Because using that name is blasphemy, unless you're God. Don't let anybody tell you that Jesus did not claim to be God of the universe. Don't let anybody say that Jesus didn't think he was God, didn't say he was God. The reason they wanted to kill him and wind up putting him on a cross is because that's what he said. Three days later, the tomb is empty, he rises from the dead, and he says, I told you so, Right? He's not dead, he's alive. Jesus never violated the first commandment, he is the only God. He never violated the second commandment, he lived without sin. He never violated the third commandment, he always told the truth about himself. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus 
fulfills the third commandment. And we are to obey the third commandment by honoring and treasuring the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We sit in this wonderful place in human history where we know his name. His name is Jesus. His name is the only name that is true. That he's the only name that could bring eternal liberation, deliverance, and redemption. That's why Paul writes this to the Philippian church. Who, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't stay in heaven glory, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. He took on flesh and blood. Being born in the likeness of man, he took on humanity. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Verse 9. Therefore, because of the incarnation, because of the humiliation, because of this humbled act of Jesus, verse 9, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we're redeemed from the dominion of Satan, sin, death, and hell. And brought into the kingdom of God under the dominion of the triune Lord. Christ is the very incarnation of the name of God. In him are the being and attributes of God. He's the second person of the Trinity who is very God, a very God. And the fulfillment of God's saving work, saving purpose, saving power manifested in the flesh. The connection between the name of God and salvation in the name of Christ is perfectly clear in Peter's sermon on, the, uh, on Pentecost. In chapter, uh, in Acts, we read the sermon that, that Peter preached. And what he does is, it's so cool, he quotes an Old Testament passage. Joel chapter 2, verse 32. And this is what Peter says in the New Testament, pointing back to Joel in the Old Testament. Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He's quoting a Hebrew verse in the Hebrew, and it says, whoever shall call on the name of Yahweh, covenant God shall be saved. Peter's point is to his listeners and to us this morning that to call on the name of Yahweh, the covenant God, is to call on the name of Jesus, who is God incarnate. When we make much of the name of Jesus, we're honoring a glorious and good God. We are honoring a loving God. We are honoring and serving a great God. We are serving a forgiving God. So when we take the name of the Lord in vain, and we all have. We all have. We deserve punishment. That's what the third commandment says. Jesus comes as the Lord that we have taken the name in vain of and he goes to the cross and there he substitutes himself. He suffers a grueling death and dies in our place for our sins so that people like you and I who violate the first commandment, having other gods, violating the second commandment, worshiping idols, violating the third commandment, taking the Lord's name in vain can be forgiven. He humbles himself and he who is without sin dies in our place. And then he cries out, Father, forgive them. That's our God. That's our Christ. That's our Lord. 
That's why we love to sing about the gospel. That's why we love to sing about Jesus. There's no God like him. There's no God who loves like him. There's no God who forgives like him. There's no God who is humble like him. Jesus took our punishment, even though we were the one who sinned against him. He is the one who has every right to punish us. And what does he do? He loves us and he forgives us. We're not to misuse the name of the God, name of the Lord, that same name in which we are saved. The connection between honoring God's name and the gospel is clear. When the name of Jesus is lifted up, the Bible says, when he lifts up the name of Jesus, he will save sinners like you and I. That's why it's so important. Not only it's just simply unlawful, but sinners like you and me are believe, come to believe and are saved by that name. So let me, let me close with this. Listen to me, please. Here's the question. Will you bow your knee to Jesus today for redemption, salvation, liberation, deliverance? Or will you bow your knee in the last day for condemnation and damnation? The question is not for us this morning. Will you bow your knee? Philippians answers that. Everyone will. Everyone will. Everyone will bend the knee to Jesus. He's worthy of our worship. The question is now, is it for salvation and eternal life? Is it for life, joy, not death and destruction? At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He brings glory to God the Father, the weightiness, the value, the fame, the infinite worth of who God is, the God who saves. We need to turn from our sins and trust Jesus today if you have never done that. But if you're a Christian here this morning as we go to communion in a moment, examine your hearts before the Lord. Ask him, Jesus, have I misspoken about you? Have I said things flippantly and cowardly or, or cowardly? Have I not spoken when I should speak? Have I, have I used your name? Am, am I convicted by this? Or at least do I recognize that, yes, I've sinned. And, and, and now you need to just repent. Repent, turn from your sins, run to Jesus who, set, who cleanses us from our sins, washes us, died in our place, rose from the dead, and cleanses us from our sins. Rejoice and celebrate. We say this all the time at Kings. We repent forsake, then we celebrate. We don't want to stay in repentance. We don't want to stay broken. We want to celebrate God's great, glorious forgiveness of the cross. We bear the name of Christ. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. There is no salvation, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I'm going to call the, the, the band up, and let me ask you, if you, have your, if you have your cup with you. I'm just going to lead through this time. If you could just take out the bread portion. If you're, if you're not a follower of Christ, we love you. We're glad you're here. Communion is for the children of God. To sing to Jesus. We'll talk. Love to share with you the gospel with you. But for God's family as we celebrate communion, let's take the bread together. And let's remember his broken body. Let's remember his death for us on the cross. I'll give you a minute. You guys can grab cups. 
You know, in the night in which Jesus was given up, <laughs> the night in which he was betrayed, the night in which he was arrested, the night before in which he was crucified, he took the bread. He had disciples there at the upper room celebrating the Passover feast, the, the celebration of deliverance. And he took the bread. And rather talking only about the deliverance of Israel, he took the bread and he said something that was new to his Jewish disciples. And he said, this is my body. Never heard that before. They said, they never heard that before. And he said, this is my body that's been broken for you. He blessed the bread and he said, remember this. My body was broken for you. Let us eat. Then he took the cup. As we just spend a few moments before we drink this cup, just you and the Lord, remembering remembering his broken body, remembering the work of salvation, quietly and to yourself, if there's anything we need to confess, if there's anything you need to say before we drink the cup, Why don't you just quietly in your heart talk to the Lord just for a moment. Maybe you misused his name. Maybe you never thought about this much lately. But he brought to remembrance the importance to honor his name. Father, we celebrate the work of Christ. And this side of heaven will never live perfectly, Lord. But we want to respond in love, in obedience, because of the love you have already shown us in the gospel. So we receive your forgiveness. We receive the work of Christ. We believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe he died as an atoning sacrifice in our place. And we receive forgiveness that's offered to us from Calvary. His blood that washes us and cleanses us from our sins. Family, let's drink together the cup.